It's Good Friday, friends, and I want to share this message that I'm going to call My Bad. William Barrett's novel, The Shape of Illusion, tells the story of a Renaissance painting depicting an event in the last days of Jesus. The scene is Pilate's courtyard as Jesus is being led to the cross. He has just been beaten ruthlessly by orders of Pontius Pilate. Now as he struggles to stand on his own, his robe smeared with blood, Roman soldiers lead him through the streets of Jerusalem in the midst of an angry, jeering mob. Their faces are distorted with hate as they yell, crucify him. Some are spitting at him, others mock. A few are holding stones and raised hands, ready to throw Jesus as he passes by. It's an appalling scene, but the artist didn't make it up. It's from Matthew 27, the passage we're going to look at today on this Good Friday. In this novel, the painting has a mysterious quality about it. Some 300 years after it was painted by an obscure German artist, those who view it can see a perfect likeness of themselves in one of the characters. Some see themselves as a brutal Roman soldier. Some see themselves among the angry mob. Others see themselves as the arrogant religious leaders who helped orchestrate this injustice. And of course, all are revolted by what they see. The main character of the book An agnostic, by the way, is so captivated with the painting that he begins a quest to discover more about the artist. In the process, it became a quest for faith. Now, this is a novel, it's a work of fiction, but it has a powerful message. There's a sense in which each of us, if we are spiritually honest, could possibly see ourselves in the characters of this scene. Needless to say, this is not good. I mean, who wants to be a character in that painting? Who wants to be a cast member in the production of Matthew 27? Who wants to confess such an intimate role in the murder of Jesus the Christ? And even before Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ was released, it was stirring up controversy. Critics, some who hadn't even seen it yet, called it incendiary and anti-Semitic. They said the movie blamed the Jews for the death of Jesus. In an interview, Mel Gibson said, This is not a Christian versus Jewish thing. Looking at Christ's crucifixion, I look first at my own culpability in that. Culpability. Interesting word. It means responsibility in a negative sense, as in guilt or fault. Perhaps you've heard the Latin phrase, mea culpa. It means, my bad, my fault. Gibson was saying, I'm responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. It was my sins that sent him to the cross. Friends, like it or not, we must all say the same thing. It was our sin, your sin, my sin that sent Jesus to the cross. Like it or not, we are all cast members in this production of Matthew 27. On this Good Friday, I just want to take a look at the first part of this chapter. There are actually seven major roles portrayed in this drama. In each character, there are lessons to be learned, but we're just going to look at three because they fit together to teach us one crucial truth about the Christian life. The first character we're going to look at is Judas Iscariot. Our text says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. 
When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Well, there's no question about it. Judas did something unspeakably horrific. He sold out Jesus to his enemies for money. Now, Bible scholars for a long time have speculated about his motives. Some have said that perhaps Judas betrayed Jesus in, in an attempt to force Jesus' hand. After three years of being with Jesus, like many of the disciples, Judas still didn't understand. They thought Jesus was here to create a political kingdom. So some scholars theorize maybe Judas believed that Jesus was moving too slowly and this arrest would force him to act to establish his kingdom. Scholars say that this would explain why Judas was so shattered when the plan didn't work. Another possible motive is that Judas betrayed Jesus because of a mixture of greed and disillusionment. He decided that he no longer wanted to follow Jesus, and here was a way to offset his disillusionment with some extra money. He was paid 30 pieces of silver, the value of a slave, or as we see a little bit further in verse 7 of this chapter, it was enough to buy a fairly good-sized piece of real estate. Judas may have been motivated by greed, who knows? We can't read his motives, we can only read his actions. And they were shameful. After Jesus was arrested, Judas came to this same realization about his actions, and he was overcome with remorse. But instead of doing what a man should do when faced with the reality of his sin, Judas compounded his error by turning even further away from the mercy of God. Instead of running to God for mercy, he gave up on God and he gave up on himself. He decided that he couldn't be forgiven, and in spite of all the evidence to the contrary found in Scripture, and in spite of all the evidence to the contrary that he had witnessed in the ministry of Jesus, Judas decided God was through with him, and he gave up. He killed himself. Now, I've known many people who have done the same thing. Now, I'm not referring to the ultimate act of suicide. I'm just referring to the ultimate act of giving up on God and giving up on yourself. Some people are so defeated by despair that they do what Jesus did and end up and end their own life. But there are many other people who will never take final steps of desperation, but long ago have taken the step that comes before it. They have given up on God, they have given up on themselves, and they have given in to despair. They say, I'm too far gone. There's no possible way God can forgive me now. There's no possible way God will use me now. I've blown it. The damage is done, and it can't be undone. They've given up, and in so doing, they've closed the door on the possibility to experience the fresh move of God in their lives. Strangely, there are many Christians who feel that way. Maybe you've even felt that way. Maybe you've been tempted to give up. Maybe you've even considered suicide. If you have, I'm saying to you, friend, don't do it. Don't give up on God. Don't give in to despair. Seek out someone, a, a counselor, a uh, a friend, a pastor who will help you discover the presence of God in your life. Now, maybe you're not considering literal suicide, but you have struggled with emotional suicide. You've convinced yourself that all is lost and it's too late for you and you find yourself tempted to give up. I'm saying to you, don't do it. 
As long as you have breath, it's never too late. Learn from Judas. Even if you're tempted to give up on yourself, don't give up on God. Well, second is the crowd, starting at verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. That was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of these two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ, Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Now in a moment we're going to take a look at Pilate. But first I want, to see how, I want you to see how the crowd allowed themselves to be used and manipulated. This was presumably the same crowd who just days before had spread palm branches on the road into Jerusalem as Jesus entered the city calling out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They heard of his teaching and miracles, and yet on this fateful night they allowed themselves to be manipulated by evil, self-serving men. The crowd had the chance to release Jesus, but instead of choosing him, they chose a murderer. In doing so, they played into the hands of Jesus' enemies. Pilate and religious leaders both wanted Jesus dead for their own personal reasons, but neither wanted to be saddled with the blame. So they persuaded the crowd to do their dirty work. The crowd went along, working themselves into such a frenzy that finally in verse 25 they cried out, Let his blood be upon us and our children. The crowd was saying exactly what the leaders wanted to hear. They'd become puppets. They'd stopped thinking for themselves, and they allowed unworthy men to do their thinking for them. This is a mistake we sometimes make. We allow others to do our thinking. I know people who haven't become a Christian because of what they've been told by relatives or friends or teachers. I know people whose view of Christianity isn't shaped by what the Bible says, but by what some celebrity has said. I know people whose political opinions are shaped not by biblical values, but by what they're spoon-fed by the media. I know people whose view of morality is not based on Christian tradition, but on the current cultural trend. Friends, don't let the rest of the world do your thinking for you. Don't let the rest of the world make your decisions for you. Don't even let this preacher do your thinking for you. Learn a lesson from the crowd. Think for yourself. Do you know how to learn to think for yourself? It's not that you don't listen to anyone else. It's not that you don't listen to anyone exclusively. Uh, it, it, you know, Get a second or third opinion if necessary. And while you're getting those opinions, take a moment to evaluate whether or not they're laden with self-interest or are Bible-based. 
A few years ago, I was watching a news show in which they discussed the flat tax proposal, the idea of eliminating deductions and taxing everyone an equal percentage off the top. One expert opinion came from Henry Block of H&R Block. A big surprise, he was against it. He said the flat tax proposal was unfair to the elderly. Well, I kind of think he may have been referring to himself because if a flat tax is implemented, businesses like his would become obsolete. Now, I don't know whether the flat, flat tax is a good idea or not. That's not my point. My point is that Henry Block was not the most objective expert on the panel, and his opinion should, opinion should be heard with consideration of his self-interest in the matter. See, when someone is pressuring you to make a decision in one direction or another, make an effort to listen to another voice. It will help you develop perspective and will prevent you from being a puppet. Solomon said in Proverbs 11:14, "For a lack of guidance, a nation falls, but many advisers make victory sure." The religious leaders pressured the crowd to call for the crucifixion of Jesus, and those in the crowd were too thick-headed to challenge the Pharisees' motives. So learn a lesson from the crowd. Don't be a puppet. Think for yourself. Well, third and finally, let's think about Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the procurator of the province of Judea. It was a position kind of like that of a governor. Now, we know he was at least 27 because that was the minimum age in which someone could hold this office. From the beginning, there were power struggles between Pilate and the Jewish religious leaders. At one point, Pilate built an expensive aqueduct in Jerusalem, and he illegally took money out of the Jewish temple treasury to pay for it. When people protested this misuse of funds, he just had them killed. He was known to be corrupt and cruel. He was also known to murder his enemies on a whim without benefit of trial. The Jewish leaders had already reported him at least once to the emperor, and they're threatening to do it again. According to history books, by the time Pilate faced Jesus, he was in hot water with Rome. The emperor was tired of Pilate's inability to control the Jews. He was at risk of losing his job and possibly his life for the political crimes he'd committed. He was not in a position to further antagonize the religious leaders. In fact, he was desperate to earn their favor and impress his superiors back in Rome. So when Jesus was brought before him, Pilate recognized an opportunity by allowing the religious leaders to railroad Jesus to an unjust death. He could appease these enemies who had become threats to his security. And by having Jesus put to death in a Roman execution, Pilate could take credit for eliminating a traitor. Though Pilate did benefit politically from the death of Jesus, we see in Matthew 27 how he distanced himself from the proceedings. The fact is, he probably didn't feel any animosity or any loyalty um, to Jesus. What he saw, when he saw that crowd had turned against Jesus, he decided at that point to stand aside and just let the events unfold. Now, to ensure that, he wasn't blamed for the death of this popular rabbi. Pilate even made a public show of his innocence. Matthew writes in verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. See, Pilate should have acquitted Jesus, but he didn't. Out of self-preservation, he gave in to the pressure of those who had leverage on him, and he turned his back on the whole affair. 
Pilate said in effect, What happens is not my fault. Have you ever noticed that tendency to say, It's not my fault? A friend of mine had a car wreck a little while back, and I asked, Who was at fault? And he said, My wife. I said, I didn't know she was driving. He said, oh, she wasn't. I was driving down the street when my cell phone rang, and when I reached to answer it, I swerved into the oncoming lane of traffic and hit a car. And I said, well, how is that your your wife's fault? He said, well, she was the one who called me. If she hadn't called me, I wouldn't have had the wreck. Now, he was joking, of course, but I've heard people use, it's not my fault, excuse to justify their own sinfulness. You know, it's not my fault that I'm not a Christian because there are too many hypocrites in the church. Or yes, I embezzled some money, but if they paid me enough to live on, I never would have had to steal it. So here was Pilate with the opportunity to do what was right. Instead, he washed his hands of the matter and said, whatever happens, happens. It's not my fault. There is a lesson here that we can learn from Pilate. Take responsibility for your actions. There are some things of which you cannot wash your hands. There are some responsibilities you can never escape. I mean, God has given us all responsibilities that cannot be shifted onto someone else. You are responsible for you. You're responsible for the type of parent you become. You're responsible for the type of friend you become. You're responsible for how well your job gets done. And you're responsible for your own soul, your own spiritual life. You can't shift that responsibility onto anyone else. I mean, just think of it. What if I called my best friend and said, I think I got the flu. Would you go to the doctor and get a shot and be sure to take the medicine he prescribes and get plenty of rest and call me when I'm better? Well, that would be absolutely crazy. I mean, Pilate was so afraid of losing his job, so afraid that what the religious leaders had against him, that he tried to abandon his responsibility as governor of Judea. And it didn't work. We can learn a lesson from Pilate. Take responsibility for your actions. Culpability. It's the common denominator of these first three characters in Matthew 27, and they were each responsible in some way for the death of Jesus, and they each tried avoiding, to avoid facing it. Judas ran from his responsibility by giving up on himself, giving up, giving up on God, and giving in to despair. The crowd ran from their responsibility by refusing to think for themselves at allowing someone else to make decisions for them. Pilate ran from his responsibility by washing his hands and proclaiming, whatever happens, happens. It's not my fault. And yet, each player was guilty. We've got to remember that we, too, are guilty. It was not the crowd. It was not Judas. It was not Pilate that sent Jesus to the cross. It was our sin. It's your sin. It's my sin. I'm responsible. It's my fault. Mea culpa. My bad. I'm guilty. Guilty because at times I've sold out to the Lord. I've sold out the Lord. Guilty because at times I've given up on him. Guilty because at times I've surrendered my will to the will of other people and not to his will. Guilty because at times I have tried to abandon my responsibility and place the blame on everyone else. There's a lesson to be learned here. If we can recognize our guilt and acknowledge our culpability, we can receive his grace. One of my favorite Bible passages is 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's unpleasant to think about 
which face might have been yours or mine in the Matthew 27 story. But we must recognize the truth about ourselves. We must recognize that our face would have been there. More importantly, we must recognize that God's grace has the power to pull us out of that scene, to cleanse us from our guilt and purify us through and through. Yes, we are guilty. But once we recognize our guilt and acknowledge our culpability, we are able to receive God's grace. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion, and rejoice Sundays on the way.